Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. All right, welcome to this episode of the Great Birth Rebellion, and today we're picking right up where we left off last week. Last week we got you part one of our Positive Caesarean section series, and this is part two. And so today we're going to just kick off where we left off from last episode. So if you haven't yet heard episode 37, which is the first part of the Positive Caesarean section series, do that first and then you'll understand where we're up to. All right. So B, we told them that the first thing we're going to talk about in this one was how is a Caesarean section done? Do you want to do that? Do you want to do that how it's done? No, I'm, you go for it. I'm here for you. All right, great. I'm here for you. Go, girl. Go get it. All right. It's been a long time since I've had to be in one, but I very vividly remember what happens and I don't think it's changed because it's really A, B, C, D, E, F, right, most of the time. All right, so cesarean section. So if you're having a cesarean section, it's surgery, so you are prepped for surgery. Before it happens, they will ask you to fast for a number of hours, could be four hours. They will likely shave the top part of your pubic hair if it's still there because they do the incision quite like sort of on the pubic hair line. You will have a a catheter inserted. Because and that can be inserted at different times. So people, I'm like, no, you go for it. And I knew that I was going to jump in. But the catheter is really dependent on the place. I've worked at places where it's put in before and what is typically now happening is that it is not put in until you've had some anesthetic. And so that is definitely your choice. Talk to people about that, whether you would like to have it put in or not when you can feel it or when you can't feel it and what feels right for your body. So the catheter is a tube that's put into your bladder through your urethra from the outside that will collect your urine into a bag so you don't have to wee, obviously. Yeah, and so the urethra is the hole above the vagina where your wee comes out for those that may not know that yet. Correct. And if you're having an elective, there's a lot of time to plan and prepare and time. If you're having an emergency one, all of these processes are sped up and you might have, for example, an anesthetic team would come down and run through things with you. They'll get you the signs and forms. Then the medical team might do the same and run through things with you and get you to sign some forms. So there's a lot of sign forming, form signing, uh, where they talk to you about the risks of anesthetic and the risks of cesarean section. And so they've got a pretty defined script for that. Unfortunately, if you're in a situation where you're having an emergency cesarean section, it's very hard to take all that in, which is why we're sort of talking about, you know, considering all of this ahead of your birth so that you feel prepared if this is a situation you find yourself in. And so that would be looking at the pros and cons of um, all the risks of anesthetic and cesarean section because, and that can feel really scary when you're already in a vulnerable situation and then people come at you and say there's a risk of 
hysterectomy, for example, and then that's all you hear, that can then really take you away from feeling safe in your birth because that may be what you hear and hold on to. And then you're thinking, what, what's going to happen? Or subsequently that can be, not subsequently, but it can be what your partner or birth support people hear. And then that can really take them out of being in the present moment. So I think it's really important to look at the risks and know what may be said to you in that time. So the other thing is if you've had an epidural and you're going for an, what is classified as an emergency cesarean, you will already have a catheter in. And some people may have, because it's hospital policy, have already had an appointment with the anaesthetist team or anaesthetic team. And that may have already happened. And so you'll have that information available to you. And they'll likely want, if you don't already have one, to put cannula in. But again, that might happen down in surgery when you're already settled in, but they do want to take blood. So they, again, know your blood group and blood type and all there's these basic bloods that they will take before before surgery. That's kind of a routine thing. Even Uh, if they've got them on the system, they still take them because what they're doing is holding blood for you. So it goes into the blood bank and they're saying, we need, this person's about to have surgery. We want to make sure we've got this blood for them if they need it. Yeah, exactly. And so then if you've got your partner or support person with you, they will offer them full surgical gear to like scrubs to put on what we call scrubs. So a big blue outfit, they'll put a hairnet on you and your partner. Um, they'll ask you to take off any jewelry that you've got on and they'll ask about all kinds of dental things to just, again, that's all anesthetic related. They will give you this drink, which I can't remember the name of now, but it's almost, it's a shot. Sodium citrate. Sodium citrate. And that is in case you need to be put under a general anesthetic or, yeah, they're going to put you to sleep. If you've had food in your labour, they give you this to reduce the acidity of your stomach acid. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, just shot it. Yeah, just shot it. It tastes gross. But they'll give you the drink and off you go to theatres. When you get down there, there's a little holding base. So they'll wheel you on the bed and your partner will follow behind. And the bed orderly, so it won't be a health professional, there'll be somebody pushing the bed who's not a health professional and you'll have likely have a midwife with you who's the one who's been with you through labour if you've been labouring before your cesarean section. And they'll walk you down to theatres. Then there's this little holding bay, kind of an anaesthetic bay they call it, and you'll meet the anaesthetist who's going to be your anaesthetist who's with you. And the anaesthetist's job is to be with you at the head, they call it. They're, you know, they're at the head of the woman. They're responsible for monitoring your health and well-being while the obstetrician and theatre team is doing the surgery. So the theatre team is not necessarily watching your blood pressure and heart rate and all these things. That's the job of the anaesthetist. They're also the ones who are going to administer your anaesthetic, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so... Yeah, you'll be down in this holding bay where they kind of, you'll wait there until the theatre staff get the theatre ready and there's a number of nurses whose job it is to be, like to their theatre nurses, and the obstetrician and the obstetrician will have another doctor there assisting them. So that's the people that are going to be in the room. Theatres are very cold. I think they're about 16 degrees. And sometimes there'll be a theatre that's specific, depending on the place where you're birthing that's specifically for cesarean births and that will be warmer but it's 
they're cold, they're bright, they're typically a huge shock to the nervous system. So rationally, you may be thinking, I'm fine, this is safe. You may not. You may be thinking, wow, this is such a contrast. But they are very, they're a huge contrast to our natural environment. And this can play out massively on our nervous system. So I really encourage people here. And often people will find that being wheeled down to theatres can feel quite sympathetically dominated. So they feel really nervous or there can be trauma there. So really encourage people throughout this time to do things to help their nervous system. So whether that be wearing an eye mask, wearing headphones, listening to affirmations or having your partner say them to you or having something that you smell that makes you, you know, that is a comfort thing that you can smell. And basically my biggest tip is to diaphragmatically breathe and drop into your body. So really connecting with your body, trying to do that beautiful diaphragmatic breathing or otherwise, or as well, allowing your feelings to actually be there and saying them out loud and just validating them because all your feelings throughout any labor and birth, but just all your feelings are valid, no matter what they are, whether it's happy and excited and knowing that your feelings can coexist. So you can feel excited and really happy and also a little bit scared or sad, for example. And so even voicing them out loud to your support person or partner, hey, I'm feeling this and just being heard rather than listened to to fix. So, you know, encouraging your support people to just hear what your feelings are at the time and feel your feelings. So you may need to do some body movement to shake out some of the fear or actually drop into sadness and have a cry, for example. And if you can shift that and move your nervous system into a much better state, that can then make the actual process of birth in theatre feel a whole lot safer and more connected. Um, yeah, totally. So yeah, all those little journeys and stops and doors and people that you'll meet. And another thing you will encounter is that kind of every transition point between wards, there's usually someone whose job it is to check that you know what you're doing there. And so when you get to anesthetic, they say, hi, my name's Susan, whatever her name is, or his name is, I'm Paul. And so you're here in, in theatres at the moment. What are you here for? And they would um, say, yes. Sorry. I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I have a very personal experience with this. I don't have a personal experience, but my husband does. So he's only just started listening to our podcast. He's only on episode two. So it's going to take him another 36 weeks to get here. I mean, he would have, I'd have his permission to share this because it's hilarious. It wasn't for him at the time. So he had never been to a hospital. He'd never been admitted. We'd only had home births. Actually, this was before we had our babies. And he had this, he had a procedure and and he was going in and they did what you're talking about, which is called a timeout, right? So they did a timeout and the doctor said to him, what are you here for? And he started to cry because he was so scared about going into theatre. And it, this was when we were living in Alice Springs. So like it was all my mates, like the anesthetist was one of our mates and some of the nurses we knew. So he was with, he was amongst friends and people he knew, but they said to him, what are you here for? And he just cried. And he said, what do you mean? What am I here for? Don't you know? what I'm here for? Like, shouldn't you know? Like, if you don't know what I'm here for, then we're all in trouble. And he just completely freaked out and cried. And that's why I'm laughing because it was hilarious. Um, so yeah, that's what B's talking about is this timeout situation where they actually want to make sure that when you arrive, you know what you're there for. 
and they haven't mixed anything up. They ask everybody, they're like, which leg is being amputated today? So, you know, they is it they'll ask everybody. It's a process. It's obviously been designed because there's been a series of mistakes made in the past that they've worked out. If we do this, we can limit the number of mistakes. So that when you go in and they say, Hi, what are you here for? It's okay to just say, I'm having a cesarean section. You don't have to give them any details. You don't have to tell them the story about how your induction didn't go as well as you thought and then you didn't dilate it. So now I'm here. They just, they're like, what are you here for? I'm having a cesarean section. Okay, is your name this? They will keep checking your name and your date of birth and they'll always ask you, have you got any allergies? You know, everyone will ask you the same questions. It's just multiple checkpoints. If you've got allergies, you'll have a red band on and everyone will ask you, what are you allergic to? And so it's just this series of repetitive questions. So just answer the questions. They, they're they doing it for a reason. So where are we? We're in the anesthetic bay now. Your partner will be in there with you. Now here's where we'll talk about your anesthetic options. So when you go and have a cesarean section, you've got a few options. If you were in labor and you and you were laboring with an epidural, they can top up this epidural to make it effective pain relief for a cesarean section. So you'll have enough pain relief to not feel pain. You will under the influence, under an epidural and another one that I'm going to talk to you about is spinal, feel movement and pressure so that those sensations will still be there, but you should not feel any pain whatsoever under the impact of an epidural or spinal anesthetic. So both the spinal and epidural is pain relief administered into your spinal, the either epi, into the epidural space. And so you won't feel, you shouldn't feel anything from kind of your boobs downwards and they'll check, they'll check that before they start. Your legs will feel numb as well, and you'll likely not be able to move them. So though in that situation, you're awake and you're able to sense everything. And if you have a spinal epidural and you're awake, your partner is allowed into the theaters to be there for the cesarean. If you elect for a general anesthetic where you're put completely to sleep and you're not awake and you're not aware, then your partners won't be able to be in the actual theatre for that process. And so they will be literally just waiting for the baby to come out of theatres and they'll receive the baby while you go to recovery. And the other thing is that you'll be wheeled into theatres. Your partner will be asked to stay in the anaesthetic bay until your anaesthetic is effective. So if you're having an epidural or spinal, they will do all of that without the partner in the room and then they'll welcome them in after that can be a real stress point where women have had their partner with them the whole labor and all of a sudden they've been separated and but it's only momentary and sometimes they don't tell you sometimes they just say look just wait there we'll come and get you when we're ready and they don't tell you how long it's going to take they don't tell you why so it might only be 15 20 minutes but there'll be a, a gap is that for the spine you just said that was for the spinal yeah, I really want to challenge that because, and I really want to invite you to challenge that if that doesn't feel right, because that can often be like you've just been wheeled into theatre. You may have never been in a theatre in your life, and that can feel really big and and scary for some people. Other people, it won't be. But I really, I really invite you to discuss that with your care providers because here's the thing: they can be 
in the labour room when you have an epidural? Why can't they be in theatres, right? And so I have had, and some people will have, will be able to have their birth photographer, their student midwife or their doula there with them. The midwife should be able to be there with you. But I think we are very capable of listening to instructions and not going where we're meant to go. And people can be guided and supported in a really nourishing way to do that. So I do challenge it. I totally challenge it. I've cared for people who have had their partners there. It can be possible. It really, so much of what happens in theatres is down to individual people making decisions. Why can't we do it? And as maternity care providers, we've got to ask the question because this is a huge event in people's lives, bringing a baby into the world. It's not just a standard procedure to them, right? And when we work in theatres, it can feel very monotonous and the same things happening again and again, but these are human beings we are dealing with and this is your birth. So I do really encourage in an emergency situation, it may be really hard to advocate or challenge that. And I appreciate that. But especially if you're having a lactic cesarean or you have a continuity of care provider, like talk to them beforehand. Hey, if we end up in theatre, can I have or I want my partner with me? What can that look like? Uh, it's often down to the anaesthetist team. And there are some phenomenal anaesthetists out there that are willing to go above and beyond. Some of them are the best birth photographers I've ever come across. They they get in and they take all the photos and they're a part of the birth and shout out to those anaesthetists doing that. Others aren't so on board and sometimes they just need to be challenged a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying here's what here's what to be. Yeah. And challenge it is what I'm saying. Well, you can and often it come. yeah, it's a single person that could make a decision or sometimes there's a procedure that they just aren't allowed to budge from. So it's not always necessarily the fault of anybody there. It's just like, look, this is the rule in this hospital and if we break yeah, it. We can compassionately encourage them to change it. Totally. We totally not about not doing this aggressively. Compassionately going, hey, this is really important for me. Can we have a discussion around what it could look like instead? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so we've just moved out from the anesthetic bay into the theater. They will shuffle you from the bed that you were wheeled in from onto the operating table, which is quite flat and hard. It's narrow. Narrow. It's so narrow. Obviously makes it so that the person doing the surgery can get as close to as possible without having a bed in the way, but it's quite narrow. You, So you'll be on there and then they set up this drape that will kind of, if it comes across your shoulders, sort of it, if you're lying down, it's kind of like a curtain that will mean that you can't see what's happening in your surgery. And we'll talk about alternatives to that when we talk about how you can make your cesarean better. But typically that's what will be set up. You'll be interacting and seeing the anaesthetist whose job it is to be at your head. And then also when your partner comes in, they will be sitting there next to you at your head. So below the drape, will be your arms and your body and there'll be a lot of action that's where all of the clinicians and doctors and nurses are positioned and your midwife will hopefully also be around around your head for a little bit but then the midwife does get involved in the process of a cesarean section along with a pediatrician so there's one of everything in the theaters so once they've done your either spinal or epidural and you lay down and you can't feel anything, 
that's when they will get ready to start your cesarean section. They may or may not tell you they've started. So it all depends on the bedside manner of the doctor. I've seen where women sort of lay down and like, what's going on? <laughs> and then he's like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, he's started. It's going to be it's going to be done soon. Sometimes you'll have a clinician who will just talk you through every little step. And you can ask. You can say, look, I don't I don't need to know what's happening or uh, can you just talk me through what's what you're doing? And then, you know, just whatever you need. Some women are like, look, don't tell me just when the baby's out, that'd be fine. I'm happy. Yep. So you're laying down. There'll be machines. You'll have a blood pressure cuff on likely as well, which is what the anesthetist will use to keep an eye on your blood pressure. You'll have a oxygen saturation monitor on your finger, which is going to tell them what your oxygen saturation is and keep an eye on your observations. You will likely have drip, IV drips with fluids, possibly syntocinon antibiotics running through your drip as well. People, well, it's routine to give prophylactic, meaning preventative antibiotics for a cesarean because you run the risk of infection because you're in theatres and you're being opened up. Um, and so something that you may want to discuss with your care providers is waiting for that any for those antibiotics to be given until after the baby's cord is cut. So um, they, you know, it takes a while to cross the placenta and go through to the baby, but that may be something that is important to you that you actually ask, can you give me that? once the baby is um, is no longer attached to my body. Yeah, and there is some research about the timing actually, and they might say they can't. But yeah, I've looked at that in the past because women have requested the antibiotics later. Uh, I'll have to have another look at it, but I know I've got the paper. Here they go. In the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives, we will discuss this further, the timing of antibiotics for cesarean section. Uh, but I'm pretty sure from memory it didn't make a difference to infection rates. So it was a reasonable request from what I can remember in that paper. Yeah. So then, okay, so we're lying down, your partner's in there, your anaesthetist is there, the drape is up, your team is there. They're going to, your, your pain relief is effective. And this is you've had a spinal or epidural. If you don't, then you'll be asleep. And the rest of the detail might not be important to you, but the process is the same regardless of whether you're asleep or awake. It's the, the anaesthetist's job is just different and your partner won't be there. They'd have to wait outside and wait for the baby to come out. Yeah, so then it starts the procedure. And so an incision is made. So there's obviously they're going to make everything sterile. Everybody's in sterile gear. There's what we, in theatres, there's what we call a sterile field, which is why they keep the partner up at the woman's head is it's considered beyond the drapes all the drapes are considered sterile so you see everywhere in sterile gowns gloves everything's set out on these usually navy green or green army green drape looking things everything's been thoroughly cleaned Uh, so that's the idea behind a sterile field so you can't just trot around the theaters touching things so then they'll make an incision on the skin they also need to cut through every other layer. Uh, there's a fat layer and then they'll come to a muscle layer. I have seen them use these cauterizing tools. I don't know the name of the tools. I'm not a surgeon. But anyway, they make incisions through the skin, through the fat layer. They will meet your muscle layer. So then when they get to your abdominal muscles, they don't actually cut through your abdominal muscles. But there's... There's a there's fascia between, so your muscles, your abdominal muscles that run 
from your pubic bone up, if you imagine up to your ribs, just for visual. They actually separate those with their hands. So there'll be one doctor on one side and one on the other that kind of pull the muscle apart and it's the the connecting tissue that they pull apart. Then they will find your uterus and your uterus will get an incision as well. So it's multiple layers and they will repair each of these layers as well in the repair. So it's not just kind of the skin and, oh, there's the baby. There's layer and layer and layer. Then so that they'll have an incision on your uterus. And, again, there's various techniques for doing this, and it depends on the position of your baby. If your baby's in a breech position, they might do a breech extraction where the baby's bum and, and the head's born last. I have also seen obstetricians put their hand in a woman's uterus, spin the baby, and have the baby be born head first in a breech situation. If you've been laboring and the babies come lower in your pelvis, sometimes they need to reach in and down and lift the baby's head up to come into your uterus so it can come out. So it's not like they'll just make an incision and the baby's head will pop out and it's all that easy. Sometimes the extraction can be complex and obviously that's not in the midwifery realm at all. That's all the knowledge and skill of an obstetrician. So I'm not going to go into too much detail. They will often have tools which hold the incision on the skin and fat and muscle layers open. I've seen various apparatus that can be used. Some are metal, some are plastic, some not at all. Like I've just seen various techniques depending on the clinician and the, th- and the, the place where you're at. But, so that will happen. Baby comes out of the incision. The whole thing's pretty quick. Like once they start the first incision, you could have your baby in 10 to 20 minutes. So it doesn't take that long. And then probably the repair takes longer than the actual birth process. So then the baby's brought out. Depending on the hospital and your preference, sometimes they can drop the drape that's in front of you so that you can see the baby. The usual process is that they'd cut the cord they would, the midwife, your midwife would receive the baby on a nice warm towel and take it to a trolley with a pediatrician who will check the baby over and then they bring the baby back to you. Here's where there could be alternatives and we will talk about those top tips in when we talk about how to have a better cesarean. But if you're going to go with the flow, that's what's going to happen. They may wrap the baby before they bring it to you unless you've elected to have the baby left unwrapped so you can have skin to skin. So sometimes people are presented with this little, like just Michelin baby and all they can see is their little face because there's so many towels and blankets. And at that point, again, depends on the hospital and your preferences. While you're being repaired, while the incision's being repaired, either they'll allow the father, partner to hold the baby while you're being repaired or the baby will be with you skin to skin. And there might be a point where the midwife who's with you, who's been with you for your labor and with you for your cesarean will say, okay, it's time for us to go now. And she means us when she says us, it means her, the partner and the baby. Time for us to go now. The woman would be sent to recovery after the repairs complete. The the partner and the baby would be taken to postnatal ward to sit and wait in the room until the woman comes back from theaters. And the midwife who sent you madly makes all the notes and does all the documentation, everything that she's been trying to do all day and all that kind of stuff, logistics, all the logistics. 
there are a lot of alternatives in this space and that's what we'll talk about in a minute. But that's essentially what happens. And the woman goes to recovery where she's with nursing staff, not midwifery staff, not doctors. It's it's theatre recovery staff. And basically they're there to make sure you haven't experienced any complications from your surgery uh, or anaesthetic. Once they're happy with that and you're stable, usually it takes an hour or so, they will take you up to postnatal ward. So if you're separated from your baby, you could be separated for an hour or two after a cesarean section. And in that time, your partner would have the baby. Or longer if there's complications. Correct, longer if there's complications. That's a bit of a rundown of what to expect from a cesarean section. And now B and I will give you a list and B's got her own list and I've made a list too. There's probably a lot of crossover of how you can make this whole process a lot more in line with what you would want and potentially better. And yeah, B, what's your very first top tip for how to make a cesarean section better? If you are choosing to elect a cesarean section, then being involved in choosing the birth date as um, much as possible. Obviously, you know, sometimes the hospital that you're birthing at may only do elective cesareans on certain dates, but really encourage you to be involved in deciding that birth date and being offered some choice around it if it's possible. And also, unless medically indicated, really advocating for the closest to 40 weeks as possible, because this is linked to huge short and long-term benefits for your baby. And, you know, as we talked with Hannah Darlin around the induction, babies are being born earlier and earlier and earlier through interventions like induction and elective cesarean and so please uh, greater than 39 weeks as a minimum the closest to 40 weeks as possible and a date that suits you as well that is not just care provider a benefit to the care provider but a benefit for you and your baby that's my first one first tip what so have you got? let's take it turn in turn yeah, let's do that so my first tip is if you can so if you know you're going to have a cesarean section or if there's time before a cesarean section if you're having an emergency cesarean section is to express some colostrum if you're planning on breastfeeding your baby or giving your baby breast milk express colostrum before your cesarean section so if you know you have to have a cesarean section, or that's the plan, then you can start expressing colostrum from when you term, 37 weeks. Uh, it doesn't have to be much. Like a baby's first feed could be a few mils of colostrum. The idea behind this is that it reassures you that if your baby is separated from you, or if there's a complication, that your baby's going to get colostrum and not formula if it's hungry in the interim or if it wakes and it's unsettled. And this also can give your partner some power and make them feel less concerned that they're sitting there with a baby without its mother. And if the baby's unsettled, potentially because it wants to feed, then so it can be really comforting to your partner to know that they've got a few syringes or a few vials of colostrum that they can use. And particularly sometimes these babies are born by cesarean for a medical reason. They could experience a drop in blood sugar as a result of the reason that they were born by cesarean section. So, you know, if you're not able to have your baby uninterrupted skin to skin, or you've had a general anesthetic for your cesarean section, then having a few, as many sort of frozen vials or fresh vials of colostrum available will mean that your baby, their first feed is colostrum. It will ease your feelings about the possibility that your baby might get formula if it needs it. 
It can help make sure the baby's blood sugars maintain. It can help with the comfort of whoever's left with the baby while they're waiting for you. And it will mean your baby's needs are met in the interim. So you can do this even in labor. So for I've had clients who it looks like maybe we might be heading towards cesarean section. And I'll, and I'll often say to them, is it okay if we ex- express some colostrum in, before you go to theatres? And it might only take 10, 15 minutes to get a few meals out at the time of labour and at least you know it's there. So that's, that's my tip. Make sure your team know where it is because I have heard from many people where they've expressed it and then the milk got left up in labour ward or nobody knew where it was. So super important for the team to know where it is. And again, this is super important when you're birth mapping that you do this with your partners or your birth support team. So they're fully across what your preferences are in certain situations, which is why thinking about what we don't want is actually really important. Yeah. And I think um, keeping the milk with the partner can be a really nice way of making sure you don't lose it because the partner will be with the baby. Um, Typically put it in the fridge. If you turn up to hospital in labor and you're laboring, then they will put it in a fridge and then it can be forgotten. So it's really, it's to, yeah, it's a partner's role is to know where the milk is at all times for sure. And don't forget it at home. So this is the other thing. A lot of people actually express antenatally thinking it's going to be great and then they go to hospital and they've forgotten the breast milk. But you can still express on the day. So you yes. can still get enough. You can get it, You can at least get a few meals to give your baby colostrum. If you forget it, go, ah, damn it got all that colostrum at home, that's okay. I can hand express some more while we're waiting for the birth, while we're waiting for the cesarean. It's one of the staff members to help you as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so my next point was to have an epic team that you trust. And so especially if you're having an elective cesarean, you can have a doula for that, right? There are doulas that will want to support you choosing that method of birth. Or a student midwife. Student midwives, you you can get private midwives that will admit to hospital very very limited and limited on where you live. But again, having that epic team you trust may be that you choose to have private obstetric care because you do want an elective cesarean and you really loved your private obstetrician. And a birth photographer can be part of that team too. You can, again, that's discussing with your care provider in the place that you're birthing. But birth photographers are more and more now being accepted into theatres to be a part of that birth team. Mm. And in terms of electing who you want to be there for your cesarean section is, you know, even in a public hospital, if you've got the option of elective cesarean section, you could ask to be on the day with a doctor that you've already met and that you particularly like that on the day that they're working. So there's some element where you can choose, you know, even if you're in a public hospital. Um, We're putting out all our biggest wishes here and totally acknowledging that this, that you may be met with no's or I'm sorry, that can't happen here. So just want to say that as well, because sometimes we can make it look like it can be incredibly wonderful and have all these things and your reality may be different to that. Yeah. Okay. My next tip is about vaginal seeding. So a little bit controversial and there's a lot of research that I And when I was preparing, you know, I prepare every episode and I make all these notes. And then literally as I was getting on to the podcast with B, I was looking over my notes and went, oh my gosh, I've forgotten vaginal seeding. And I was madly searching through the data, the research databases. And there's so much research. So I admit I haven't included stats and very good sort of evidence in the podcast, but I've got the fail safe of the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives, and there'll be a whole section in there on vaginal seeding. So 
I'll give you a bit of a rundown though. So vaginal seeding, that you know, that one of the concerns with cesarean section is that the baby bypasses being born through the vagina. And when you're born through the vagina, you collect and you collect your mother's vaginal flora, which starts off your microbiome. Uh, yeah, so it gives you a start. And, you know, the bowel flora is part of that. So you collect all this flora by exiting through your mother's vagina. So in the instance where you have you were having a cesarean section and your baby's born through a cesarean, then the opportunity for exposure to that is reduced. So this, it was about 2016, they, I think was the big study, but they talked about vaginal seeding. And the way this is done is you moisten. So if you work in a hospital, you'd know what all this gear is, but basically it's, it's a little square of gauze, about 10 by 10 centimeter little um, fabric gauze, which are sterile. And you sort of moisten that with some sterile water. And that gets sort of bundled up into a bit of a tube and inserted into the woman's vagina about an hour before the cesarean section. And just prior to the cesarean section, you remove it, put it in a sterile specimen jar. And the idea is that it will have collected some of the vaginal flora and when the baby's born, you can use that to squ- swab and wipe over the baby to kind of mimic the colonization that would have happened if they were born by cesareans, by vaginal birth. And so it can be a nice way of, you know, re- reclaiming that, um, you know, that thing they might miss out on. So there is some research that talks about how when you do vaginal seeding the, and they test babies after that, they notice that the microbiome mimics that of a vaginal birth for the baby versus a baby that's not had vaginal seeding after cesarean section. But that after a year anyway, regardless of where you, how you were born, that uh, babies born by cesarean who haven't had vaginal seeding seem to catch up by a year. Uh, whereas the ones who have vaginal seeding are more in line with the microbiome and the cultures that I found on babies born vaginally. There are some concerns that sometimes women have pathogenic bacteria or bugs in their vagina that could be transmitted to the baby unnecessarily, where if they'd had cesarean section, they wouldn't be affected by particular bugs. So this is super individual and would really depend on why you're having a cesarean section. And if you had certain things, like if you had active genital herpes, you're having a cesarean section to avoid contact with the vagina. So obviously vaginal seeding is not for you. Uh, But I will put all of the research papers up in the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives as well. And some of them will be, if you're on the mailing list, you get access to a resource folder so you can have a look. But no, not many hospitals are proactive with this and many don't have a policy. And so the staff can't do it. But if you say, I need some gauze, some sterile water and a specimen jar, and you do, you can do this yourself. The staff will not want to do it, but it's your body and you can do this. And all of these things you can gather beforehand and do it without anybody knowing if you want to, because it's your body. Uh, the one thing I will say is if you've had antibiotics prior though, to going to having the cesarean section, your microbiome will be different again. So if you can try and do this before you need to have antibiotics during your cesarean section, that would be ideal. The biggest thing that they are worried about here is GBS. 
the biggest pathogen, pathogen, what's the word? Pathogen. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what they're mostly concerned about is that, so if you're planning for a vaginal birth and you're GBS positive, then that is something that you are potentially going to expose your baby to. And you can go back and listen to our GBS podcast on that. And that's what the the research is really weighing up. Yeah. And have a look at our GBS episode if that's something that you're considering as well. But vaginal seeding is an option. That's my tip. What's your next one? My next one is actually placing the electrodes on your back. So you have electrodes placed on you. Think about like anytime you've ever seen someone in a theatre and they have those uh, sticky patches with the little button. Uh, You can ask to have them placed on your back because that will allow for much easier and nicer skin-to-skin contact for you and your babe. Good tip. Yeah, I didn't think Mm -hmm. that. My next tip is elect to stay awake instead of go under general. Uh, I just think it, and this will depend on your emotional and mental state as well. Some people need to completely disconnect from the process and that's something that will be something for you to decide. But if you can, if you feel safe and comfortable, then staying awake by use of an epidural or spinal anesthetic instead of a general will make that early postpartum period less, I guess, disrupted. And you can, you've got more of an option to breastfeed your baby early if you're planning on breastfeeding, to do skin to skin, to not be separated from your baby, to be alert when you finally do meet your baby. So yeah, that's my top tip. And so I, this is something that some people will really want to do and others won't. So, but I just want to offer it out there is actually taking a moment to honor your body, especially your womb and all that it's done. This may be something that you just do internally. This may be something that you say, can you tell me just before you're about to cut so I can have a pause and a moment with yourself or a moment with my support people. I have known people that have talked to their surgeons and said, can we just be really aware of the energy in the room and that this is my body that you are working on today? But just, you know, it may be something that you may want to do internally or with your partner, or maybe something that you want to bring attention to in terms of the people in the room. Can you be aware of your energy, aware that you're working with my body today? Can we take a minute to honor it? And that may look like, can you all just pause and we just honor my womb before we cut into it? Again, this is very individual, but body holds a lot of our trauma and it can be really nice to connect with our body. And this is a lot of the work that I do now is reconnecting people with their body. So it can be a really beautiful thing to actually step out of that prefrontal cortex move down more into your body and just honor it and be with it as it's having this procedure which can be really tricky when you're being numbed out and so maybe it's super important to have that I wanted to highlight it because I've had some people recently do it and it's really added to the positivity around their birth experience bringing that ownership and empowerment back to them yeah and something that could easily be done Okay, my next tip is to request that the baby's brought to you before it goes to the pediatrician. If the baby comes out and appears to be in good condition and, and an, an obstetrician and midwife can determine this at almost first glance, if your baby's in good condition, ask that it doesn't go to the pediatrician first, that it comes straight to you skin to skin, not all wrapped up. And so to facilitate this, when you're getting ready for your cesarean section, instead of putting your gown on with the opening at the back, put your gown on with the opening at the front. 
And that will mean that you can open the gown up and put the baby skin to skin and close the gown back over the baby if you want to. Another way that people do this is, is they'll leave one arm out and one arm in the gown if it's back to front, but you can put both arms in and just have the front open. That'll facilitate skin to skin. And continuing from that is you can ask for what we call continuous skin to skin where the baby's not removed from you and that it actually stays on your body all the way from the cesarean section, all the way through to recovery and all the way through to postnatal. So your partner doesn't take the baby and the partner comes with you the whole way. So all three of you aren't separated. This is a little bit of a logistical thing. So if you're having an elective cesarean section, many hospitals have what they call the skin to skin midwife, whose job it is to, is to follow you all through that whole journey and with the purpose of facilitating the baby skin to skin. If you're in a situation where the hospital doesn't have that or it's an emergency cesarean section but the baby's completely fine, then they sometimes will not facilitate it because it's considered a staffing issue because the midwife has to stay with you the whole time and that's not factored into her usual workday. However, there's this is my strategy for getting around that. Is And this is a strategy that I always tell women is do not under any circumstances seek to solve the hospital's problems. The hospital has problems and the problem is, is that they don't have staff, that their procedures are system centric and not women centric. And so when a baby is born by cesarean section, the expectation is that the midwife will take the baby and the partner up to postnatal and then the midwife will use that time to do her paperwork and her other non-clinical work while you're being repaired in theatres and waiting in uh, recovery. So that's good for them, but it's not good for you. And Often they're needed to get back to look after other people too. Like if it's not continuity right. of care, so if you're getting midwives just from the system and you're in a fragmented model, the midwife from birth suite may come down and then she's getting massive pressure to go back up and look after another two people in labour. And so then the postnatal midwife comes down, but she has to go back. And so it's it's not that they're just, I think a lot of midwives would be listening to this going, I wish I was just sitting down doing paperwork, but often they're actually having to go back to look after other people. Yes. And this is a problem of the system. It's the midwife did not create that problem. The woman did not create that problem. But we as women need to remember that that's not our problem. And so when the midwife says, I need to take the baby now because I've got to get back or we've got to go to postnatal, that's solely based on the needs of the system and of that particular midwife. They're not thinking of the woman's or the baby's or the family's needs. And so now this is your opportunity to take ownership of your baby because that baby's yours. So when they say something like, hey, we need to take the baby now, you could ask, is the baby currently in danger? Does this baby need to be checked by a pediatrician or to have some kind of treatment? If your baby's well and can stay with you on skin to skin, I would suggest a very simple line of, I understand you want to take the baby now, but I'll actually be keeping my baby with me through to recovery and to postnatal. And that's the end of the discussion. And they'll try and say, oh, look, I've got to get back. My team leader's calling me. Like there's other women I need to look after. Mate, that's a you problem. That's not a me problem. That's a system problem. And it's not your job as the birthing woman to solve the system's problems. The reason why this is allowed to continue 
is that women feel bad. We go, oh, wow, yeah, that really sucks for you that you've got this heavy workload and that you've got to go back to another woman. Let me allow that to happen by following the procedure that facilitates this kind of action. If you refuse to let go of your baby, that midwife is required to stay with you. She cannot leave you and your baby unsupervised. And so now the system is forced to solve the problem. So the midwife will need to step up and say, look, I've told the woman I need to leave. She's declined to let go of her baby. And so now I need to stay with her. And the team leader or whoever's requesting something of that midwife will either say, look, fine, I'll work it out. Don't worry. Or put pressure on that midwife again to say, look, I really need you to come up. You've got to, you've got to work this out. So the woman has to stay strong. You say, no, no, this is my baby. The baby's well. I'm taking this baby through to recovery. Then the system has to solve that problem. They have to find another midwife. It'll cause upheaval, but it's not your problem to solve. So please don't feel responsible to solve it because if you solve it, the system will just keep doing it. But if you make it their problem, they'll have to solve the problem. And I think as anyone that tries to separate a mother and baby, we really have to think about why we're doing that and is it necessary? Because when you rob a mother and baby of those vital minutes and hours together, you can't, that nothing gets that back. This person has just carried their child with them their entire life and that child has only known their mother's body and voice and sound and other people's sounds, obviously like the partner and stuff. But biologically, we are programmed and designed to be with our babies and there is nothing more unnatural. There is no bigger unnatural feeling than being separated from your baby. Yeah, I know midwives don't want to, but they're in a situation where they feel like they have to. Um, And that's our job to start challenging in our workplace what goes on. But so much trauma is held when a mother or a parent is separated from their baby and their support people. There is so much trauma around that. And so often I hear, we just took the baby as a precaution. No. And it happens all too easily and it should not ever happen as a preventative measure. Like, oh, we're just going to take the baby to keep an eye on it. We are clever. Health professionals are clever. We can observe with with a mother and a baby together. Yeah, totally. Do you have another tip, B? If you don't know your baby's gender and it's important to you, you may want to ask to announce that to yourself, uh, announce that yourself. So sometimes the care, your care providers can get super excited and announce that. So just letting them know, hey, this is something we want to discover and announce ourselves. And again, continuing with lots of eye-to-eye contact and chatting with your babe. I think sometimes it can feel a bit like, you know, we don't just want to have this intimate conversation with our baby because people are around, but I really encourage you to do what feels right. And just with the skin to skin, it, it really does depend where the baby is placed on you to how comfortable that feels. Some people don't feel comfortable with skin to skin because it feels like their baby's on their neck. Um, and so if it doesn't feel comfortable, just asking them to reposition And again, if it doesn't feel right for you, this may be something that you discuss with your partner that, hey, if skin to skin doesn't feel safe for me or right for me after birth, can you do it as well? And there's beautiful research that shows skin to skin contact within the first 24 hours 
of becoming a parent for people that aren't giving birth to the baby, so partners, that it rewires their brain. Um, and it's really, really special. So for your partner to have like a minimum of an hour skin to skin within your baby's first 24 hours, regardless of how it's born, is super, super important. The other thing is your baby will often... I would say 99.9% of the time be taken off you for you to transfer beds. And so when you come off that narrow bed that we talked about back onto your postnatal bed, most people out of safety don't want you holding the baby just in case it was to fall. So again, thinking about that, I've definitely supported people who were not willing to give up their baby at any stage. Uh, So really just knowing that that can sometimes happen or that the baby can be taken to recovery maybe one or two minutes before you are. So again, constantly thinking about what you want, what's what's right for you through that whole time. Yeah. The other thing you can do is uh, if you want to have the music, like particular music or something that soothes you. So either if you've been doing hypnobirthing or you've been meditating or you've been using something through the pregnancy and labor particular music you can take that into theaters everyone's got a phone your partner could have it on the phone you could ask um the theater staff to play a a particular spotify playlist or something often in theaters they've already got all this set up actually for the staff so some staff members will listen to music Um, so there's no reason why you can't hijack that and actually have your own music or soundtrack playing for your cesarean section Yeah. And I know I've known people that have taken in like a wedding photograph or something special to them. Or if, you know, they've just lost a parent recently, they'll take something, just something really small and tiny in. Uh, The other thing with the skin to skin uh, is really putting on your birth that you want to wait for all the weights and measurements. So if it's healthy and, and you're happy for people to look over, asking for things like that to, and again, this is a system issue because they just want to get it done so they can do the paperwork and register the baby and all the rest of it, but asking until you're there or for it to be done next to you. The other thing is if the baby is taken to the resuscitator and it's needed to, some theatres will have cameras that you can watch so you can actually see what's going on. They'll have a big TV screen. If they don't, um, asking, and I always made sure that the resuscitator was in view as much as possible because sometimes it's tricky, especially if the theatre is small. But making sure that you, the person who's given birth can actually see the resuscitator. Otherwise, um, getting the partner over there and really encouraging your partner to at least talk to the baby, especially if it's being worked on. So when I was a, when I clinically practice, if we're doing any resuscitation, I'll say, come over here, dad, or to the other mum talk to your baby, your baby knows your voice. And that is such a powerful tool in resuscitation. So getting them, and that can feel really uncomfortable, but just because you just met this baby, but hey, baby, it's your dad here. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm holding your hand. Maybe you, you know, if you, if there's an ability to hold the hand to do that, but really talking to your partner around, hey, if this is needed, this is what you can do. This is what it can look like. like the other thing, like you can, you touch, can touch the baby. Yeah. Putting touch, you know, don't be a shy, just it's your baby. Just do whatever you feel motivated to do. You know, if the baby's crying, you can, well, yeah. Anyway, sorry, interrupted you. 
we're not going to interfere. So I just want to, yeah, really put that out there. And um, using your own blankets can be really nice. Again, that because the baby's not, once the baby's born, we don't need to keep the baby sterile. So it doesn't need the hospital blankets. And the other thing is, if you do get separated from your baby, remembering the value of FaceTime. So if your partner goes with them, trying to make sure that your phone is with you and your partner's phone is with them. So you can actually be there and watch things that happen. And so if a wait needs to be done, because often, especially for babies unwell, they will need the wait to work out medications saying, can you either film it if you're unwell and can't watch it or aren't awake to watch it, please film those things or FaceTime me for them. Um, Really, really important to feel like, you know, you're a bit more connected to that. Yeah. My next tip is you can ask for delayed cord clamping. And we spoke about this in one of the other episodes. I can't remember which one now, maybe one of the placenta ones. Um, So when the baby's born by cesarean section, they're usually pretty quick. The baby's born, they cut the cord, they bring the placenta out and it's all, like I said, A, B, C, D, E, F. So, but it's completely possible to have bring the baby out and then wait a few minutes with the cord attached until they cut it. And this can um, offer, you know, all the benefits of delayed cord clamping that we talk about. Some of the objections for this are that the theater's cold and they don't want the baby to get cold. Or they'll say, yes, we can do that so long as the baby is in good condition and we don't need the baby to be worked on by a pediatrician. So this would be something that you would talk to the obstetrician about before going in. And this is a decision for the obstetrician. Some things the anaesthetist has control over, other things the obstetrician does. So if they say, no, we can't, it's actually not a no, we can't, because I've seen this done before. It's a no, we won't. So just ask them, can't you or won't you? Is it actually impossible or you just won't do it because it's not something you're used to? And so a technique that, so something I've explained to obstetricians before with clients of mine, I've said, look, I've seen this done before. It's completely possible. I've seen it done in this hospital or whatever you need to tell them to make them feel comfortable with this. Like you're not the first person in the whole world who's done delayed cord clamping for baby born by cesarean. And I just encourage them when they position the woman on the, on the operating table is to actually spread her legs a little bit so that when the baby's born, the baby can be nestled in between the woman's legs on the sterile drape. And that way it kind of cocoons the baby a little bit to keep them warm for a few minutes. And there's a clock there and they can wait one or two minutes of just allow the baby to take some of that placental blood into them, which is what they normally would have done if they had a vaginal birth. So asking for delayed cord clamping. And if they won't, then you can say, well, that's fine. I would like a lotus birth, which means that you, the baby would stay attached to the placenta and they'd have to bring the baby out, position the baby somewhere, and then bring the placenta out before they can move the baby on to its next destined location, either with you or to the pediatrician. And that can buy you a little bit of time, even if you're planning on cutting the cord and not doing a full lotus birth. 
I reckon from my practice, it's it's standard now for most cesarean babies to get delayed cord clamping in all the places I've worked. It wasn't years ago, but definitely a couple of years ago we were doing it and, and really thinking about your placenta. So we talked about that a couple of episodes ago, but it can be very quick, easy for the for the staff to just dispose of the placenta. So asking for a placenta tour, so to actually have the placenta explained to you and or kept if you want to do something with it. Yeah. The other thing is that's really important that we haven't mentioned, and especially when you're doing delayed cord clamping, you may want this, is ask for the drape to be down. So sometimes you have the option of a clear drape or bringing the drape down, and that is so that you can see your baby when it's having skin to skin really tricky. Sometimes you can see through the light above you. I do want to say that sometimes you can see things you don't want to see in the light above you. I think obstetricians and anaesthetists are very getting very, very, are very clever at avoiding that. But sometimes you may look into the light and see things that you don't want to see. And that can be, especially before they start cutting into you and your partner may see things too, is say, actually, I can see things in that light. Is there any way of moving it a tiny smidge so that I can't, or just knowing that you don't don't look in there, but we often look where we don't want to look. What were you going to say? Because they kind of mirrored. That's what B's saying. You yeah. can see the reflection of what they're doing to you in the, you can see the reflection in the, in the light above you. So, yeah. yeah. And the last thing I wanted to, talk, to mention was just considering probiotics because you are getting um, prophylactic antibiotics. So prophylactic meaning prevention. That was my last tip before we move on to is there anything oh, else. I've got a few more tips. So a few tips that you can document the process with photos. So if you if you want photos, like B said earlier, a lot of theatres are allowing birth photographers, but iPhones are great these days. Your partner could take heaps of photos as well just to, you know, solidify that memory. The other tips for a positive cesarean journey is early initiation of breastfeeding. So if you are doing skin to skin and you want to breastfeed, then holding on to your baby and then making the midwife aware there, can you help me latch the baby if the baby looks like it's rooting around for a feed? So early initiation can be a really nice sort of just it, it avoids that gap or you know loss of something that you might have had if you had a vaginal birth. The other thing is to, if you can manage to wrangle this, is to you'll be in hospital for a few days after a cesarean section. It can make all the difference to have your partner stay 24-7 with you after a cesarean section. Some public hospitals don't have the ability to facilitate this. If you're in a private hospital, it's a lot easier. But if you can somehow work out how to keep your partner with you for your entire stay in hospital, that's going to make your postnatal experience much more positive. And my final tip for a positive cesarean section is to take the pain relief that they're offering you. It could be my particular clientele, but I've seen women feel reluctant to take too much medication after having had a cesarean section, and they'll often decline the pain relief options through fear of what it's going to do with their breast milk and for their state of consciousness. But can I just suggest that you stay on top of your pain and don't tolerate discomfort after having had a cesarean section? You know, the your postnatal journey in pain is possibly worse than the medication that you might need to keep on top of the pain. And pain um, is an interesting thing. There are whole teams involved in managing pain. Once you've got pain under control, it's easy to keep under control with maintenance of medication. 
But if your pain gets out of control, it's very hard to re-wrangle it into a state where you feel comfortable. So the idea is even if you feel okay and the pain's not too bad, to maintain your pain relief schedule and not try and get off it too early. And this is huge because this all comes into the imprint of what we believe a mother is and that we have to put our child's needs before ours. But if we are doing that, then we're not actually being the best version of ourselves. And, you know, it is much easier to care for another human when you are pain-free. And actually what you are doing is placing a huge hindrance on your recovery. And also you're not the best version of yourself. And so you're not able to care for and look after your baby. You have to come first in motherhood. And so the start of your motherhood journey can often really reflect what your imprints are around what is a good, and I'm doing in inverted commas there, mother. And yeah, we have to, we have to look after ourselves first. And many of us have learned that the hard way. And hopefully if you are pregnant with your first baby, you will hear us today and go ahead with that. And the other thing there is obviously really thinking about your postnatal period and recovery and having support in there. So your postpartum doula or friends and family that can do things. And there's one more thing. And this is, if you heard my interview with Dr. Sarah Buckley, we, in a previous episodes, we talked about filling hormonal gaps. So there are hormonal gaps that get left if you haven't been through the full process of physiological labor, which is hormonally governed. There'll be hormonal gaps in the oxytocin process and all these things. And I just want to reassure you that Sarah Buckley talks about how we can fill the hormonal gaps that maybe got missed by the loss of a physiological vaginal birth. And the two things that can fill hormonal gaps and help babies and parents to catch up is extended skin-to-skin opportunities. So for days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks after the birth, just prioritize skin-to-skin with your baby, with any, any parent, and breastfeeding. So these are the two things that are scientifically have determined to be able to help fill the hormonal oxytocin gaps that occur by not having the full vaginal birth, physiological vaginal birth experience. So I just want to reassure you that even if you missed out on that journey, there is the opportunity to fill hormonal gaps with those two strategies. Yeah, I think really highlighting that for everyone, skin to skin isn't something that just had to happen at birth. It's such an incredible way to to be with your baby. The more skin to skin, the better. Awesome. All right. So me and B have so got here's, here's the real here's the real what happens in birth. Two at the start of last episode, we thought we weren't sure if this was going to be one episode or two episodes. And now it's taken a turn that labor and birth often does, and it's actually going to be a three-part series. Um <laughs> This this was a lot longer labour and birth than we had anticipated or prepped for, but we do. We've realised we need three episodes to cover this because maternal assisted cesarean, whilst there is not much research on it, we do think at this point it needs its own episode. Yes. So me and B have been slowly working through the preparation that I did and all of the work that went into planning But it turns out what I thought would be maybe a one, maybe a two-part episode is now going to be a three-part episode, three-part series on positive cesarean section. So B and I are going to wrap it up today. So the next next episode in this series is going to be me speaking to Natalie Elphinstone, who is an obstetrician here in Australia, who assists women to have what we call maternal assisted cesarean sections. So I will walk you through what that is 
and I'll chat with her about the process. And I will see you in the episode after that. Amazing. Bye, B. Thanks for being here. Yes. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right.